morning. This is Phil Coover. I am the host of the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast which presents real estate professionals and attorneys to create thoughtful comments here on current real estate issues, explanations of sophisticated problems, current developments, and entertaining discussion. Today, we have two great guests. We have Andrew Dealey and Brett Holmes, the, the co-founders and managing partners of Steel City Management. Uh, Steel City is a Chicago-based boutique investment company that manages real estate projects for high net worth individuals and institutional investors. These guys are great, and they're doing something really interesting, which is they do build-for-rent communities. And so it's a detached single-family homes. They go out and they build large communities of homes that you can rent instead of buy. But instead of your traditional single-family homes for rent, these are really nice product with really nice finishes, all the look and feel that you want from a high-end new development, uh, yet that's available for rent, which is really attractive to a lot of millennials and people that uh, have some income, but you know may not be willing for whatever reason to make the commitment to purchasing, whether they don't want to be a landlord or a homeowner. Uh, or whether they don't have the down payments or whether they just want the flexibility because they just moved to the city to, for some for a work reason or whether it might be moving soon. Uh, so there's, there's a various reasons why people like this product. It's um, relatively new to the market. And, and more importantly, these are just great guys. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, if you guys have any questions for me, ideas for future guests or topics, you can feel free to reach out to me at philip.coover at icemiller.com. Uh, as you'll You'll see my partner and co-host, Jay Augustin, also a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group, is uh, co-hosting me on this one, uh, which I think makes it a little bit more fun. So hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. Today we have uh, our co co-host, Jay Augustin, who's also my partner in the real estate practice group of Ice Miller. He's also my, my favorite co-host to have on the show. Jay, Jay, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Phil. I've been uh, listening up on a lot of conspiracy theory podcasts to get better at this, and I think you're going to really see improvement from me today. <laughs> we, we hope with each one that improvement is what we get. Um, and so we have Steel City Management is our, our premier guest for the show. We have the two, the two founding partners, managing partners, Brett Holmes and Andrew Dealey. Brett, Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. Hey guys, thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. We're excited to be here. Awesome. Well, people have listened to my intro, but why don't you start by telling us just a little bit about Steel City and uh, the business's goals? Sure. So um, yeah, just kind of jumping in, we hope to, to provide maybe a little bit different perspective as, as relative newcomers to the business who've taken a route that's a little bit unconventional, I'd say. Um, Brett and I are unique in that we go way, way back. Um, so further than most business partners, I'd suspect growing up in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, hence the Steel City moniker that maybe some of the listeners have figured out. And uh, we played soccer against each other on rival teams since about the age of 11. Um, I think we played, Brett could correct me here, but we played about eight state championships in a row against each other. And they were filled with a ton of altercations and team defections and red cards and everything in between. But 
Um, Brett and I were actually somehow we managed to stay away from each other as far as those confrontations went and kind of always respected each other. And, uh, you know, we're friendly and passing and that kind of thing. And we actually went our separate ways in college, but had some mutual friends just kind of through Pittsburgh. And, and we actually ran into each other on the soccer field in Chicago uh, serendipitously a little bit in 2007, I would say. Um, we had both. Yeah, and I would just I just cut in and add that 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 particular soccer match, like I'll never forget it. It was embarrassing, the level of play that we were <laughs> subjecting ourselves to. We're like two years out of college, still pretty fresh and in shape. And it was a, you know, not to disparage anyone, but it was a co-ed league um, that was recreational at best. And it was uh, kind of one of those situations where the two of us saw each other and we were like, you know, kind of, what are you doing here? You know, um, <laughs> so that's, what got, that's what got us together, though. So, you know. Whatever it takes to bring people together, I'm I'm, in, I'm supportive of. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully there's no footage of that game. Um, but Brett and I will always remember that time, and uh, I think we probably grabbed beers afterwards and just kind of talked about where we were. Um, career-wise, we were both actually like at um, trading firms in Chicago, working in finance, and uh, neither of us were completely satisfied. We kind of decided to spin off and start our own trading desk uh, at the Board of Trade in uh, 2008, trading uh, fixed income derivatives primarily. And that's really where I would say we kind of bet on ourselves for the first time and, and really stepped out in an entrepreneurial way um, with our own capital and kind of put everything that we had into buying a uh, seat at the uh, at the exchange and really got started there, ran that operation for about eight, nine years, something like that. I was on the trading floor and uh, Brett was on the headset. So we were communicating all day, every day. And that's really where our uh, professional marriage kind of uh, started, I guess I would say. What would you say, um, are, as you guys are kind of developing the idea of working together, what were the strengths, what were each of your strengths and how did they kind of complement each other? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I guess like where it was with specifically trading and then we can kind of move into real estate is, um, you know, I was sort of operating, this is Brett, I was sort of operating, um, you know, our, our, our computer systems and our trading uh, algorithms and sort of doing some of the financial modeling. Andrew is is one of the most competitive people I've ever met. So like when we started working together, we brought him upstairs and he learned, you know, really quickly. And then, you know, we got to a point where we wanted to start our own desk, but we really needed some presence on the trading floor and, and neither of us had too much experience down there. So he just kind of volunteered to kind of step in and, and figure it out and go down there and it's it's not an easy environment, I think, to um, break into. You know, there's a lot of competition. Everyone views everyone else as an adversary. But he went in there, and we, you know, we figured it out. So um, I think that mentality has kind of played out throughout our working relationship. A lot of it's like, hey, we're going to roll up our sleeves and figure it out. Put ourselves in some pretty uncomfortable positions, and you know, we take risks together. So we've had some really rough days, <laughs> uh, but fortunately, we've come out on the other side. So. Andrew, maybe uh, so you're at the tra you have your trading desk for eight or nine years. What mm -hmm. motivates you to kind of pivot uh, into the real estate space? Yeah, I mean that that's a good question. I think that we had seen a little bit of the writing on the wall in our industry. Um, everything had just gotten all spreads had gotten tighter. It was getting more combative, just more stressful. I think you know Brett's mentioned that 
previously. And, uh, you know, we thought a lot of the skills were pretty transferable as far as uh, dealing with numbers, dealing with risk, um, stepping out there and betting on yourself in a very similar fashion. So we had always kind of dabbled on the side, I guess I would say, in in real estate and kind of one-off condos, understanding, you know, how loans work and placing tenants and small rehab projects and things like that. And, you know, Brett had done a pretty extensive remodel of his own place and learned a lot from that. So, um, we felt like it, it made sense from our skill set, and um, you know uh, we took a lot of that kind of knowledge base and, and jumped right in with a six-unit building on the northwest side of Chicago where we knew nothing. And um, you know it's funny to look back on how little we knew relative to now, but we think that you know that's something we've always felt comfortable with, really stepping out and, and placing a bet on ourselves. Yeah. And I, I would just add, like, I think that that's probably something you see a lot in Chicago more so than anywhere else. You see a lot of ex-traders, ex-brokers that have to sort of reinvent themselves after the, the market dries up or the floor goes away or whatever. And so we see a lot of these guys out there in the field and, uh, you know, the, the, the skill set isn't, isn't purely transfer, transferable, but I do think that the risk appetite enables people to just go out there, step out on a limb and buy a building. And that's, that's kind of what we did. We, we really didn't know what we were doing. And we just, you know, bought a six unit building and, and figured it out and, and learned a lot, made some mistakes. But um, yeah, I think that the transition to real estate was sort of um, fly by the seat of our pants. And, um, you know, I think um, it was a great learning experience um, to be able to do that. Well, then take us through from buying that uh, first six flat, uh, six unit building into how, your evolution into what Steel City is doing today. Sure. Maybe, Brad, you want to start with how we found our first building? That's probably the best anecdote we have. <laughs> I don't know how much we want to reveal on this call, just giving that there's uh, several attorneys here, but uh, we, uh, we got... We got a little tip off that there was a building available. I mean, this place was the most dilapidated building you can imagine. And it was in a nice neighborhood, to be honest. So, you know, in retrospect, it totally made sense. But um, uh, Buddy Ours is a real estate agent and uh, he he had the listing for this property uh, in Portage Park. And he was like, man, he was telling us about it. He's like, there's hoarders there. Um, we have to get rid of this woman who's got all this stuff. And then he's like, there's a squatter. And there's people that come in and out of the basement. We found needles down there and all this stuff. And so, you know, basically he was like, are you guys interested in this? And we were like, uh, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, so we, we took on this building and we walked in there and there was, there was actually one day, like we decided we we're going to go up and, Hey, let's do measurements and figure out what kind of renovation we're going to do. And we noticed that there was something odd about the door handle when we got there. And so we like kind of poked our head in the building and the, like the most bizarre thing happened, like somebody had gone in there and smashed every light bulb. Um, and so we thought that like, you know, whatever the, the, the person that was doing needles or something was back, you know, and they like found their way back into the place. So Andrew just happened to have a baseball bat in his, uh, in his car. So the two of us went in there, like straight out of the movies, like opening doors, getting ready to club somebody. Anyway, it turned out there was nobody there, so we we got new door handles and, and locked it, and you know that ended up being a pretty successful project. But anyway, to, to answer your question and to kind of move towards where we are now, I think what what we learned from that is we developed a strategy um, that worked pretty well in the northwest side of Chicago, and it was um, essentially scooping up multifamily buildings, performing like a completely over the top rehab 
to the point where we had contractors that were telling us, Hey, you guys are doing too much. This is way, this is, you, you don't have to like put all this money into it. And we, we basically built our condos inside these like 1960s, 1970s buildings. And, you know, if you've driven around Northwest side of Chicago, you know, there's hundreds and thousands of those. Um, and so we, we, we just kind of went with that. That's what we learned. And that's what we learned worked pretty well. And we were able to hit rents that were literally double the building that was right next door and with identical unit sizes and everything. And I think that, you know, a lot of people go up to those areas and which are traditionally working class and don't really want, don't really think that they can hit the rents that, that we were able to kind of achieve. So yeah, maybe it's just kind of dumb luck. Yeah, that seems uh, it's in, I don't know if it's dumb luck. It seems pretty shrewd strategy. I, I wonder what kind of drove you to that, um, to that thought, right? It may, it may be intuitive to me to say, we look young guys starting out in the real estate game. It may make sense to do a very kind of, uh, you know, B minus level flip, uh, you know, to get these in, in shape for tenants. What, uh, what, what trends in the market or what led you guys to conclude, no, instead, let's kind of push the envelope in terms of improvements and fixtures and, and kind of the tenant experience um, in the idea that you will be able to kind of drive rents beyond the comps, you know, for the neighboring buildings. Yeah. Um, I'll just, I'll just kind of mention that I, I have a particularly meticulous uh, design eye and, and that's not to like pat myself on the back, but I, I, I get like a little bit obsessive about it. And so I told Andrew, like when we were picking out stuff, I was like, we got to do this the right way. We got to set ourselves apart. And I think I didn't really think we were going to hit the rents that we hit, but I did want to be finished with the renovation and know that we're going to have tenants that walk in and it's going to be an instant lease up. We didn't want to deal with you know, sifting through a million tenants. Um, so I think that was part of the thinking. And then the other part was just personally, I, I really had a lot of trouble doing just, just good enough or just like what, what a lot of maybe developers or, or rehab guys do. Yeah. And I, your- I just wanted to add to that is, is Chicago has gotten more and more saturated and more expensive downtown. Right. I think a lot of the neighborhoods surrounding that have been kind of neglected and there are these buildings that have been around, you know, as Brett said, since the 60s and 70s that have really good bones that are actually built structurally in much better fashion than the, than the newer product is. Right. Um, but but no one's really touched them for years and they've just accepted um, tenants for 10, 20, 30 years and, and assume that the tenants are OK with that product. And no one's really tried too many things. And again, that's changing. I'm not saying we're the first to come up with this. Um, but the idea is once we do get in there, you renovate every unit at the same time, um, use our economy of scale there, that it's a much more lasting product. And then at the end of that, we can place our own tenants, um, you know, and, and higher credit scores and just kind of more um, desirable from that investment standpoint um, is really, I think, why we gravitate to these neighborhoods that, quite honestly, we never really knew existed when we were in our little downtown finance bubble of really getting out there and, and really meeting people. And that's something that real estate provided for us relative to, you know, what we previously had been in, in, in finance. Yeah. And I, I guess getting back to Phil's question, you know, transitioning from there onward, um, you know, I'll just say that that's, this is a strategy that we're not currently pursuing right now. We ended up selling the portfolio. Um, we built it up to be just under 40 units and, um, I think Andrew and I realized that the the management intensity, um, the availability, we, we weren't at a point where we could hire third party management or, you know, a dedicated individual to run the portfolio. We really needed to get to 100 plus units or something. And I think we realized that, you know, concurrently with this um, multifamily strategy, we were syndicating deals and really looking to um, 
you know, express our, our interests in, in new residential concepts um, through development projects. So uh, we had syndicated some projects with some local developers, um, mostly in multifamily. And um, where this sort of transitions to what we're doing now is we, in 2016, we uh, came across a group that are still like, you know, our, our, our main partners, uh, Watermark Equity Group out of uh, Wheaton, Illinois. And these are just like fantastic guys, high level of integrity, super hardworking. They brought us a site, oddly enough, in uh, Minneapolis or outside of Minneapolis. And they said, hey, we have an idea here. We want to build these like single family homes and we're going to rent them. But they're going to be these like tiny little pocket homes. And we're going to just like bring a new concept to an area that's that's growing fast. And so um, we loved it. And so we, we raised a bunch of money for that and, and, you know, saw that project through, which was sold last year. And um, that sort of like proved out, like, I guess this uh, these build for rent communities. And, uh, you know, I, I guess we can we can jump into that if you want. But like that's. That's kind of what we're doing now. We're doing a lot of build front communities. We're raising capital. We're um, more operational now than just a capital source. Well, guys, I think you have something really, really unique here. Can you tell us a little bit about a build for rent community and what that really means and what you're you're trying to have available as an offering to your tenants? Yeah, absolutely. So like a, a build for rent community, um, it's probably important to distinguish between that and like single family rentals. Um, as most people know them. So, you know, single family rental portfolios were a lot of scattered site uh, portfolios that were amassed after the great financial crisis with, you know, some big companies that are publicly traded now, like Invitation Homes and and American Homes for Rent. And so uh, a build for rent community is is a little different from that because a lot of those homes are dated and they're scattered sites. Um, What we're doing is we're essentially building entire subdivisions of brand new, durable, purpose-built uh, rental homes. And um, there's there's a lot of different iterations of this, but, you know, by way of our first project, which happened to be in a very affluent area um, where we were in a top school just northwest of Minneapolis, um, homes were going for four or 500,000 plus, um, we were building pretty large homes. And, and this is like kind of an evolution from the original idea. We were going to build these small homes and um, you're seeing that a lot in build for rent in the Southwest. Uh, Phoenix is kind of famous for it. These uh, small things that look like detached apartments, and they'll build two or three hundred units, and it's, it kind of resembles almost like a like a like a vacation, uh, you know, or senior living or something like that. I think what we're doing is we're building subdivisions that are indistinguishable from an everyday suburban subdivision. We're building larger homes. Um, we do two car garages. Uh, initially, we wanted to do two and three bedrooms, and now we're doing three, four, even five bedrooms. Um, and so we, we do a full amenity package. I mean, I, part of that's that we were in this, you know, this area with high home prices. We didn't think that you know bringing a twelve hundred square foot home was going to do anyone um, any interest. So. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where we are. That's what a build for rent community is. And our particular, um, part of that, uh, subsector, I think is definitely on the luxurious, uh, high amenitized end. So. Yeah. I mean, they look great. I mean, from, you look at the pictures, they're you know, white kitchens, gray, gray backgrounds, granite countertops. It's, it's all that everyone needs. I mean, what, um, I, I kind of think you guys just hit a home run before, the pandemic even happened because you have 
you're offering this product of the American dream of a beautiful home uh, that is just on a different it's just a different financial approach as the the buyer slash renter. And you have all these highly leveraged uh, middle class that I have a buddy who always talks about buddy from law school. always talks about the highly leveraged middle class spent all their money on student loans. So you may not have <laughs> the, ca- the cash reserved uh, reserves to, to purchase, you know, a big suburban home, but you're making it available on a rental basis and nobody has to, you don't have to tell everyone that you're renting uh, or you could tell everyone because people might be very proud of having the flexibility of being a renter, not having to deal with plumbing and roof issues. I mean, being a homeowner, I, I love and I hate at the same time. Um, and then on top of that, you also have the pandemic where people who traditionally were living downtown in smaller apartments saying, oh my God, I need an apartment. I need a, an office. I need a backyard. Um, I don't want to be on the 17th floor anymore. Uh, so you, you kind of have like this, you, you were ahead of the market and then the pandemic hit. And now, um, you know, so can you tell us, has your occupancy rates improved? Um, have you seen any noticeable change since the pandemic hit? Yeah, I would think, I mean, that's a really good question. I think we, like anybody else in this business, we were pretty nervous heading into the pandemic of how it would affect our existing developments. And the one that, that Brett mentioned that we sold and uh, ended up being June of 2020, we were about 80% occupied, I would say, in March um, of last year um, when the original uh, shelter in place went in into effect in Minnesota. And we weren't able to show anybody in person. It all became virtual. Um, and within the next month, I would say we went from 80% occupied to 100%. We found that those homes were snatched up almost immediately. Kind of what you're describing about the the city to the suburb kind of shift and people wanting more space and privacy and all those kind of things. So a product that had already been doing quite well for all the principles that you know we've kind of we've already laid out um, became arguably like the hottest um, asset class. Um, out there. And so we were very fortunate in that that sense. I think people wanted to sign longer leases um, than they previously had. I think that it was uh, was something that we didn't necessarily anticipate, but at the same time, we are conservative of our approach and we want something that, that survives all cycles. And we're not building high-end condos in, you know, in Miami or New York or LA or these, these very pricey, um, high-risk, high-reward kind of scenarios. So um, fast forward a couple of months, we had no delinquencies. Um, payments came in um, right on time. And, and at that moment, we kind of realized we want to strike this as often as we could. And that our tenant actually it really did help that our median income in our first um, community was really over 130,000. They were really renters by choice. It wasn't even what we had originally guessed that it may have to do with down payment or student debt or all these kind of things. Um, it was really the convenience factor and their ability to kind of um, call their own shots and how long they wanted to stay. So I would say um, that was really a, a something that was unintended, but it, it, was, it was something that we benefit for, from going forward. I was just going to add really quickly that we were actually raising rents on those last 10 units that we were getting leased up. We just kept pushing them a little bit higher and a little bit higher and they were getting scooped up. It was uh, really quite interesting. 
But I think what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting to me in talking about your uh, kind of the last set of your multifamily projects before you transition into the single family residential uh, market was, again, your commitment to the design aesthetic and to providing a really high quality tenant amenity experience. Tell us a little bit about discussions with Watermark. Were you guys on the same page from Jump regarding how you wanted these units to look and feel, um, or or did you have to sell a little bit um, to really kind of you know share your proof of concept with your prior projects and to what you wanted to bring to the single family community in Minneapolis? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and I think it's like maybe an opportunity to give a shout out to you know our partners there. I mean, like we we came into that this first project as. Um, just the largest LP investor, um, you know, Andrew and I pulled, uh, capital from our network. We got these guys on board with the idea and I got to give them a shout too, because in 2016, this looks pretty weird. You know, um, my, I remember my dad asking me like, who's going to want to rent a house when they could buy one? I'm like, well, yeah, not everyone can buy one, you know, but, uh, you know, with watermark, as far as the design, we had to sort of lean on their direction, you know, I mean, they, they were running the project. We didn't really have any um, operating uh, leverage or responsibility there. Um, and so they did a fantastic job. I mean, there was definitely some times when they reached out and said, hey, what do you guys think about this? And we gave our uh, our input, but we did lean on them pretty heavily. And I think that that's one of the things we really appreciate um, about good partners and especially those guys is they, you know, we're, we're seeing things a lot in the same way as we're realizing that, you know, putting a little additional investment in the design and you know, of course, the functionality of some of these uh, projects goes a long way in, in terms of its, uh, you know, long-term viability and, you know, rapid lease-up is important to me. So um, that, that that's that's definitely something. We didn't really have any tension on that. I think that we all just kind of saw it. I... Who's your favorite HGTV designer? What's your favorite HGTV show? <laughs> Um, I could tell you our least favorite, but I don't, I don't know if I don't want to, I don't want to throw anyone on the bus. Um, <laughs> that's, <probably it. laughs> that's actually hilarious. We, yeah. uh, let's just, let's just, well, yeah, we'll just end it, end it with that. We did get to get wrapped up in a, um, a, a TV personality on a project and it was probably our least favorite one it turned out fine, but like it really could have turned out less or more fine. So All right. I'm, I'm asking, thanks for asking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking you about it after the recording stops. A hundred percent. So Andrew, you guys are now uh, pursuing a project in Nashville. What were some of the lessons uh, that you took from the Minneapolis project to, to what you're bringing now to Tennessee? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think as, as Brett alluded to there, we've kind of moved up the responsibility chain here into full general partnership with our, um, you know, with, with Watermark Equity Group. And they really bring a lot of the construction background and and we've learned from them and really leaned on that, that leaned on them heavily uh, in that regard. And we really don't want to change things too much. We're taking a lot of the similar plans from Minnesota that have done quite well. I think we've been able to learn on the fly as well um, in that we saw what worked in Minnesota and what didn't. And, and we thought that maybe people would really want these two and three bedrooms to switch you know, from an apartment into a, a separate detached home. But really, we're seeing these larger families and we can drive rents in, in kind of four and five bedrooms and, and increasing our amenity and, and the hospitality package. 
Um, and so where we think it's a little bit different in Nashville, we clearly know that there's going to be a different market. The people are different. Um, we're going to have to source renders in a different way. Um, but because this market has gotten so much uh, publicity and attention and there's so many institutional players, we really are focusing a lot on the management aspect and creating a sense of community that really will lead to our tenants sticking around for kind of a longer duration and really get invested because people can rent nice homes in and around Nashville, but can they rent one in a, in a purpose-built community that has a pool, a clubhouse, a walking trail? It has activities on a weekly basis. Um, it has management constantly checking in, um, asking them what's going right, what's going wrong. So we really don't want to reinvent the wheel from what's gone well for us. But in this product, what we're able to do is really take the best and, and run with it. Um, and so, yeah, we're just excited to get started in Nashville and in a market that's, that's red hot and doesn't have... Um, as much competition as, as maybe some of the other uh, markets that Brett's mentioned previously. Yeah. Brett, share a little bit with us, given kind of your analytical background, kind of how you approach site selection, market selection, you know, what's attractive to you now, you know, what do you, what do you kind of model out as being things that you need in order to, uh, you know, develop and maintain a successful single family residential community? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, what I found really on the financial modeling side is a, a lot of these single family rental communities, um, if you take the land and, and some of the entitlement risks and everything out, they, they really check out very similarly to multifamily. Um, so it's not too different. Um, it's just like a scattered site apartment building. Um, there are some additional maintenance and operational uh, considerations. Um, but then going back to like, the part that, that we're still learning about um, and I think is probably the the biggest hang up to explosive growth in this industry and also probably the biggest risk is the uh, entitlements, the zoning and the land use. Um, you know, we never really had to think about that too much. You know, a lot of infill locations, you know, you get like a, a geotech and, you know, you have some engineers, but like it's not it's really different from taking agricultural land with you know, we've learned things about the wetlands and floodplains and, um, you know, I, I haven't really figured out a, a great way to model some of these risks that, that, you know, when you're taking a piece of agricultural land and you're taking it through entitlements and trying to get it buildable, um, there's just a lot of considerations. I mean, we had a report done where they were like flagging salamander species that are, you know, endangered in Tennessee and, you know, some kind of bird migration thing where you, you couldn't. Uh, you couldn't start taking down trees during their their uh, mating season. I mean, like just some some really interesting things. I don't know if that answers your question because it's not related to financial <laughs> modeling at all. But like, I think that the really the, the short answer is the financial modeling for for a lot of these and a lot of the uh, economic metrics and, and things that we look at are are very similar to multifamily. But I get one thing that that kind of brings up. I guess, as I'm thinking about it, right, is the importance as you guys are growing your business, whether you grow to the Southeast, or you grow to Texas or whatever, is the importance, I think, of having, um, you know, kind of some intelligence on the ground in those uh, in those jurisdictions to think about, you know, land use and entitlement issues. As you guys think about um, scaling in the future, um, at least in the short term, do you kind of envision kind of, you know, one project at a time to allow you and Andrew the and the watermark team, the ability to kind of focus on those issues? Um, or do you have to start thinking more broadly about developing a, you know, a, a network of relationships that'll help you kind of anticipate 
you know, land use and entitlements, you know, um, you know, at an earlier stage or in a more uh, comprehensive or, or methodical manner? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the, the first part of that question are, um, is that we, we kind of want to focus on certain geographic areas where we can build a network and build some familiar faces on the ground. Because I think for the biggest challenge is again, going to, you know, getting the land entitled and getting the opportunities and you're not going to get that coming from the outside. We come from Chicago and we go to Minneapolis or Nashville or anywhere like there's always going to be a little bit of apprehension to deal directly with us when there's local players that they have an existing relationship with. So uh, trying to work into geographic areas requires quite a bit of like um, schmoozing and, and, and time, you know, with individuals and networking and things like that. So um, I think our ambitions are a little bit uh, less that, hey, we, we found a concept that works. Let's scale this to a million units. I think what we're actually thinking is, hey, let's focus on you know, one or two geographies and let's, let's do really well there. And, um, we're not trying to be, you know, a publicly traded REIT. I think we would, we would like to do one or two projects a year that we can handle that, um, where we can really see the follow through. And so, yeah, I think our ambitions kind of, uh, dictate like how we're looking at, you know, the future, you know, at least from our perspective. I think that's really wise to approach it in such a a humble uh, but yet ambitious uh, approach just to kind of know what you know in terms of the financial modeling and then also have a carve out for what you don't know, like salamanders and mig- migratory flight patterns. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I I do, I have a, a best friend that's in Austin, Texas, and I mentioned him to you guys before, but he's told me that sometimes people will angrily answer the phone because he still has his 312 number. And they know it's Chicago area code, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it is true that sometimes when you're pressing in on different markets, um, that people will respond in ways that you you may not anticipate simply because of where you're from. And and so it's I guess the moral of the story is I guess you got to be sensitive to to those things when when you're going to different yeah. places. Yeah, and I'll just I'll add that um, we both have still have four one two area codes, so that's Pittsburgh and. You know, rather than, you know, putting a target on our back or, you know, having people an- answer the phone angrily, people are usually just confused, you know, <laughs> they're like, why, why am I getting a call from Pittsburgh? I don't know anyone there, you know, so, uh, <laughs> but I do think that like going into a new market, especially, you know, markets that are, that are very local, like, like Nashville, like we don't, we don't have the accent. We don't have uh, a local 615 area code. Um, and so there's a, there's definitely a target on your back. I think saying, Hey, we're a group from Chicago, we're coming down to do something, um, pricing is higher. And, and I, I, I feel like we have to find ways to overcome that. And so our answer is probably just to really get into the market and get to know people a little bit more. And it, I think it's going to take time. But I also think, you know, it's going to, you're going to prove it out, right? When you're creating a, a high quality product, you know, that is, that is focused on community. Um, I cannot imagine that, that once, once you start to tell your story and once you can kind of demonstrate its efficacy, you know, in, in a location or two that, um, you know, that cities and towns would not embrace having this kind of product in, right. We all deal, you know, many municipalities, you know, are dealing with, you know, how do you, you know, how do you, you know, cater to, to a mixed income community? And, 
having a product um, that it's just another option, another housing option that gives residents choices, choices to stay, um, I think are ultimately incredibly attractive. So I think once that story is told and, and you guys are also naturally very charming, uh, I can't imagine that 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 you're not going to have any trouble with uh, making these projects work. I would, um, you know, that's a good point. That's that's what we would not about us being charming. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that a great point. Yeah. Let's talk about that off air. Now, obviously, it's dependent on the market, but um, when we go in to some of these municipalities that have been doing um, things a certain way for for decades now, and you kind of pitch them on this build to rent community that's different than anything that they that they've seen previously, uh, I think it can be a little bit difficult to get them to wrap their heads around the idea that renters aren't going to bring all sorts of noise and disruptions to to the communities that, that they've known for years. And and quite honestly, a lot of them are property owners themselves and they see renters as a way that that it might um, that it might devalue their own um, assets. So it's the idea that that these renters will take care of these units as if they own them, um, despite the fact that they don't have any that these municipalities don't have any experience with them and and we're clearly biased we can tell them look the uh, landscaping now is outsourced right so everything's going to look the same way we have a vested interest in making sure this community looks just as good if not better as all the other for sale product but if they've been running their communities the same way um, you know without hiccup and done that successfully and, and tax purposes and all those kind of things how can we get them to take a chance on on us? And as you as you said previously, everyone wants to talk about uh, giving affordable options to middle class families and upper middle class families um, until it's in your community, right? It might impact your own property value. So I think there's a little bit of a schism there in between what people say and what they're willing to do when it comes time to like vote on your individual development. And we've certainly run into that, um, you know, in Tennessee early on, and we've pushed through that. And I know in Minnesota, that was, you know, something that we had to overcome from the beginning. So I would say that's one of our greatest challenges and no matter what market we enter. I would just wanted to add to that. I mean, I think that there, maybe take it a step further, like in these suburbs, I mean, we're building in suburbs. So, I mean, the whole point of the suburb was that, you know, people could sort of, you know, deliberately determine what type of person could be there. And in one of the ways they did that was housing costs or, you know, whatever, like uh, density per acre. And so, you know, there, there's a, there's a NIMBY attitude that is, um, you know, kind of takes, they take it out on, on renters. And so there's this, misconception i think that renters of any kind are somehow like um you know potentially less worthy in some areas than homeowners and, and you know for our product type you know it's 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 very different from the general misconception about renters you know we're we're basically offering a product type that is uh it, we're we're seeing the same type of credit profiles the same type of individuals and families that otherwise would buy a $500,000 house. And, and for one reason or another, they choose not to, whether it's the maintenance, uh, the cost, the commitment. Um, so I think it's important to really educate um, some of the, some areas and municipalities that we're not bringing in a, a different type of resident necessarily. And um, it's just a, like a, a, a change in, uh, I think, consumer trends that people so, you know, some people just want to rent. They don't, they don't care. They can afford to buy, but they want, they choose to rent. So. I would actually think that it might be better. Um, Cause you have everything being done professionally. You have 
professionals taking care of if a furnace breaks, you know, you're going to call your landlord and the landlord's going to send a professional out to fix it. The landscaping you mentioned, you know, I own a home. Am I good at weeding? No. Uh, but if you have a professional landscaping company that's doing everything, they're a lot better at taking care of the yard and knowing what to prune and not prune. I would actually think it would, you know, I, I totally understand the challenge. Um, but I think, you know, you guys have some great points that it, it could be even better. Uh, and kind of on this this note about uh, what types of people are living in, in the units, um, how, how have you, have you noticed any longevity issues? Uh, I think people often think of renters as more transient, certainly because you rent and you're not buying. But I guess to me, my biggest impediment in not moving is is not the financial circumstances that I got a house full of junk uh, and I have two kids that have lots of stuff. And I don't, I don't really, it's more the the agony of moving that's keeping me grounded in one location than uh, the financial hoops that would have to be jumped through to, to buy and sell. Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, we, we don't have enough data to show um, how much stickier uh, single family homes are uh, versus apartments. I mean, there's definitely a lower turnover. I think that's observed in the existing uh, portfolios out there, but um, with our particular product type being as large as it is and having the two car garage. And, um, I, I would, I would predict that it's going to, we're going to have a lot longer, um, you know, tenancy because people move in, like you said, you know, we we got some guys in like, or some families in Minnesota that have jet skis that they're moving into their garage. You know, um, I haven't seen any boats, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. And so, I think once families get settled and they move their things into a home instead of an apartment, it's, it's way harder to move out, you know, and if you just have to keep paying rent and a lot of our tenants actually want to sign two or three year leases. Um, if that's not indicative of their, you know, intended stay, you know, I don't know what it is. So yeah, I think that it's definitely, um, you know, a huge plus for these type of products because you don't have people turning over every spring, you know, we have a much lower turnover. What other markets are you targeting? You know, you spoke about Minneapolis, Nashville, Chicago. Um, are there what's next? What other markets are you looking at? Yes, yeah, so we we I mean we got our start in Minneapolis by way of uh, you know Watermark's uh, land opportunity, and that that we think has proven to be an excellent market. Um, and so we you know took some of the demographics there, and we're looking for those type of characteristics in other markets. And so it's. It's pretty simple. We look at uh, rising home prices. We look at the quality of the schools. We look at the abundance of companies and, and the job opportunities. Um, you know, and then we look at population growth. Like, are, do people want to live there? Are, are young people moving there? Um, and so, you know, we ended up with Nashville. I mean, Nashville obviously is seeing explosive growth over the last ten years, um, and we're finally planting our first flag there. Um, uh, we close in November on piece of land. So that should be a great project. I mean, I think that, you know, some of the obvious ones for people that are looking across the country, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth uh, continues to have all this, all the same characteristics. And, you know, I think we like uh, several other markets like um, uh, Raleigh, Durham, um, you know, the, the Denver, Boulder, Colorado Springs area obviously is, is, you know, and, and it's places like that where I think it's it's almost hard to go wrong if you if you get the site right and you come out of the ground and start building homes. 
you're, you're going to find a resident uh, that, that wants to live there um, because it's just, the home prices are just getting really expensive. So those are the key ones. But, you know, back to our focus, I think Nashville is something that Steel City Management is really focused on um, and we will continue to uh, pursue projects in Minneapolis as well. But, you know, we'll see. Brett and Andrew, as you guys are evaluating, you know, both Nashville and then, you know, future projects, you know, one of the questions that is always interesting is where we're going to raise, you know, where are our folks going to raise capital next? You had mentioned that your, um, you know, your initial project was was a, a friends and family raise effectively. Uh, as you look forward, um, how do you anticipate approaching, uh, you know, sourcing capital for deals? Have you learned lessons on these first couple of projects that have informed your your business thesis or, or your model for, for capital raising? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, Brett and I started this, our, our first project, you know, back in 2015, 2016, um, we put our own capital right next to our friends and family, right? And they really trusted us with the limited amount of experience. And it was really about like, they believed in us to go find deals for them that maybe they were otherwise just too busy. I mean, it's not that they're not knowledgeable, but they're professionals with plenty of other things going on. So um, that was really, that's the ethos of what we want to do going forward. We understand that as the checks get a little bit larger here, um, there may be less room for uh, that network as far as being able to incorporate in every deal. But we take that responsibility of handling other people's money extremely seriously. I think Brett and I and probably a lot of the listeners have have invested in projects that look great on paper um, all the way through. And then, you know, at the end, you have have minimal communication throughout. Maybe you get a K-1 that shows a loss. You ask them what happened. You don't get a response. And then you find out at the end how you did. Right. It either went well or it didn't. And that was something that was extremely frustrating to us. And the fact that in this next deal, I think we have about 50 um, unique investors, um, friends, family, my aunt and uncles are in every deal. Brett's family's in every deal. Um, we're accessible at all times. We like to relay the good news, the bad news, everything in between that we really want to continue that because quite honestly, the most fun that we have is to be able to talk to a family member or friend about, um, you know, a deal that's gone well and they're excited about our product and they're supportive of us. And coming from a finance background where it's very adversarial and not as collaborative in any sense, um, we we derive a lot of pleasure from that. And, um, you know, I trust Brett with everything that, that I have and I, I think vice versa for him. And I think our investors are comforted by that and, and really do trust their money behind closed doors um, in a way that maybe they haven't in, in other projects that they've done. So that's something that that we are um, committed to. And, and yeah, we just... We hope to to be able to do that no matter what um, no matter what institutional partner we have. We want to be able to incorporate the people that, that got us there along the way. Guys, I've I've really enjoyed getting to know you uh, because you're risk takers, but you also have a sense for for what you want to get out of your business at every turn, right? And those things change over time, and 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 what you need and what you want from your work life changes. But the way you guys approach it openly and honestly, and and with a commitment to transparency, I think really sets you apart. And and it's it's been really great getting to know you, Phil. I do think we need to wrap this up because I do want to get Brett's list of least favorite HGTV hosts, and he says he doesn't want to record that. So <laughs> that will that will for sure happen, and all. 
all I want to know is just where can I mail my check? Um, if you guys give me an address, I'll, I'll just go ahead and We're very send transparent that in. too, guys. Um, so bring us in. Oh, we appreciate that. No, we really no, appreciate Andrew, the time, guys, and and we've um, you know we've got we've enjoyed getting to know to know you guys on a personal and professional level, and and we hope to continue that going forward. So we just really appreciate your time and and every respect. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Phil and Jay, for giving us the opportunity. It's been kind of fun, and uh, uh, it's been nice to be able to talk about kind of what we do, and uh, we appreciate the interest. Most people think of us as kind of fun. So uh, I'm glad, <laughs> glad we came across that way. That's that's the best we can get. Uh, thank <laughs> you, Andrew. Thank you, Brett. I really, really appreciate your time and your thoughts today. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 